politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow scorned American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for Friday. And boy, Friday could not have come quickly enough or slowly enough. This week has been about um, three years or a life, a lifelong um, train of insanity. This is the Twilight Zone. But I'm glad you guys are back. I had a nice video out yesterday. I know a lot of our Facebook fans are are pushing me to put out more videos. But the gist of it was that what we are doing is not working. It would have been worth it to go through this crisis or these series of crises if we emerge from it with the recognition that what we are doing is not working. That's the first step to finding a solution. Because frankly, even a lot of my colleagues are still stuck on stupid. We talked yesterday about the judicial crisis. We thought this would be it. People would finally realize after, what is it, 70 years of saying we're going to get a Supreme Court majority, 20 out of 28 Supreme Court picks appointed by Republicans, they'd finally realize you're playing the wrong game, delegitimize judicial supremacy rather than legitimizing their game and then losing. No, it's all about, oh, we, we got to make sure we appoint a better judges. Are you kidding me? So that's the thing. The question is, what are we going to learn? What are we going to learn from this? Obviously, we're going to get through each thing individually. I wish I had more time to research things, to put out better information, but we got to do what we do. We got to go with the army we have. It's been a little while since I've gone through the lies about the virus spreading and spiking and what exactly that means. I think it was last Friday we did a show. So we're going to kind of mix it up with different issues. Each one, civilization killing, short-term, long-term. I don't know what the solution is yet. I'm going to think about it over the weekend. In the coming weeks, we all need to collaborate together. It's got to be something big. But there are short-term things that can and should be done, and I'm going to continue to call those plays. And when we see one after another motorists being lynched, their cars being surrounded, statues of George Washington being burnt and toppled, and the police aren't in sight, we now have police vehicles being stolen and burned and police-issued firearms being stolen. This is Mogadishu. This is Fallujah. Trump is president. The authority is there. I mean, I have the article out today on the 1871 Act. You don't need the state's permission. The the act was designed when states are willfully allowing anarchy and insurrection to grow. That's exactly what it was designed for, to bring in the military. He's got to restore order. You gotta have an inflection point. This is a one-sided civil war. There's just one side to it. See, in 1968, the reason why Nixon won big in the election is because the battle lines were drawn. The bold contrast was given over to the American people. It was unmistakable where each side stood on law and order and liberty and tyranny and anarchy. Here it's so muddled. 
Amidst all this, all Republicans could do. Senator John Cornyn, the number two ranking Republican in the Senate. I'm introducing a Juneteenth legislation. What, what is that? This cheesy pandering? That's what he thinks about? I mean, you think, who are you appealing to? Then he tweets out, DACA recipients deserve a permanent legislative solution. We must take action and pass a law that will unequivocally allow these young men and women to stay stay in the only home they've ever known. They deserve nothing less. What about us? Americans are dreamers too. What about us deserving security from the rioters? What about us deserving security from these very dreamers? The unaccompanied teenagers that were spawned because of DACA, because of this very program he lauds that led to the worst MS-13 recruitment crisis in our country. What about that? They never represent us. It's the racial pandering. It's BLM. It's the legal aliens. It's the homosexual agenda. Now the transgender agenda they're pandering to. Rather than being outraged about what the court did on DACA, outraged what the court did on redefining sexuality. No, they have nothing to say on that. And they're like, we need more DACA, more illegal amnesty. Folks, I mean, what this Republican Party, there's not a single issue they'll fight for. And then this week, they tweet out of of, of the GOP official Twitter account. An attack on Joe Biden from the left, not attacking him for being for anarchy now, but that he once stood for law and order 30 years ago. They trash Reagan's anti-crime agenda. This is your modern day GOP. If you're going to make this all about November, ironically, the Republicans won't even win in November anyway. So the time to fight is not in November. It's to get on every Republican you know and have access to, call the White House, and say, where are you? We have worse anarchy than any of us could have even envisioned had Hillary been president. That's happening now with Republicans in charge of the White House, the Senate, all these Republican judges. At least half the states with Republican legislatures. And, and, and where are they? Even Brian Kemp and Attorney General Carr in Georgia, who are supposed to be better. They're awfully silent. Is it that hard to speak on the side of law and order? It's not complicated economics like healthcare or agricultural policy. But the answer is it's not a matter of being hard. They don't believe in what we believe in. The Republican Party is merely the other side of that anarcho-tyranny coin. They're the facilitators. See, if you had what's going on in this country and you only had the Democrats to blame... We'd have a revolt from the silent majority. Here, Republicans just serve as the punching bag to redirect people's anger. And then what's shocking is that while this is all going on, the tyranny is now intensifying in red states because they're getting scared by the media lies that there's a growing second wave of the coronavirus. And while they are literally ceding territory 
to anarchists, to beat, maim, obstruct, destroy public property, set police cars on fire, burn down police precincts, take over police precincts, passing mask laws and all this stuff in states like Texas. So I figured for today's show, we're going to go back a little bit to some of the data, the trends, what is going on in the virus, because I know a lot of you are asking. So guys, before I bring on a very special guest for the first time to the Conservative Review podcast, I want to just frame this issue, because again, it's been a week since we've broached this topic. Obviously, there's a lot we don't know about this virus. Obviously, there's a lot of humility that is lacking in our leaders, where ironically, even European leaders are showing that humility. There's a limit to what you can do as a human, other than when you have already developed symptoms, obviously you self-isolate. There's a limit to what you can do to stop it. And that's what we've seen. When it spreads, it spreads. When it kills, it kills. No matter what you do, there is no correlation with lockdown. We have states and countries that did lockdown, that did good, did bad, and vice versa. There really isn't. Until now, in fact, there's almost an inverse relationship when you look at the states. So people had this expectation that the southern states like Florida, Texas, Alabama, north of South Carolina, maybe Arizona, um, man, they're, they're, they're getting away with almost nothing. And now we see on some level there is some sort of spike in cases or at least discovery of those cases. And they're making that out to be mean, oh, there's a spike in people's mind. They think, oh, that means this is the next Lombardi in New York. And they're actually writing um, titles. I, I believe this is the New York Post. And it's shocking that they've jumped on this bandwagon uh, that Florida is going to be the next hotspot. So, well, hotspot of what? The problem with this is like every lie, we are so bogged down with the Supreme Court with the rioting, with the tyranny, with the the culture unraveling, you know, whether it's the crime data or this, there are so many obfuscations, and they they spend so long brainwashing people that it doesn't. The response doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. A lot of people are asking Daniel, like, what's what's going on? What's the story with the cases? And the bottom line is, what's very confusing here is, like most lies, there's a kernel of truth. But what they do with it really is so misleading that it's the exact opposite of what the reality really proves. Meaning the reality is what we've said all along is that this virus has spread far and wide so many more asymptomatic than you even know or think. It is therefore, thankfully, much less deadly than you make it out to be. So therefore, beyond stratifying and shielding a certain population, you got to learn to live with it. Now, beyond that, are, are we close to being done with it in, to- in totality, which I kind of thought two weeks ago, or maybe it's going to be here longer? I don't know, and I don't think anyone really has a firm grasp yet. But either way, it has been proven that there's nothing we can do about that. And, and that's that's really the important thing here, that th- this is not Ebola. But what they're doing is they're taking the reality of one half of the equation and ignoring the other half. So now it's proven that indeed this is far-spreading, asymptomatic, 
exactly like we said, and therefore very few deaths. And what we're seeing, ironically, is this talk about a spike has been going on for at least two weeks in most of these states, yet that we are not seeing a surge in deaths. And in fact, like in Florida, the new deaths per day are literally single digits. I mean, it's nowhere. So if anything, in some ways, it makes the case better for us that even if there is a spike in cases and some degree of community spread beyond an accounting gimmick of just actualizing, realizing more cases through universal testing, it would actually be helpful because that actually proves what we knew all along. Remember those California doctors? Lots of cases, few deaths. Lots of cases, few deaths. And also what we're seeing specifically now is there's mounting evidence. A lot of Florida officials I've spoken to uh, agree with that. The University of uh, Pennsylvania Medical Center doctor that was responsible for like 40,000 tests there in Pennsylvania believes that the virus itself is qualitatively weakening aside from the fact that it looks like it cut through the vulnerable population. Um, The big data point to know is that in Florida, the median of the cases, so not the median of death, that was like, 80 years old, the median of you know those who test positive was 65.5, okay, 65.5. Now that's at 37. That, that, that's a huge deal. And what that tells you is, again, the, the, it, it's a lot of factors. It doesn't pick, fit on a bumper or sticker. Often, if it's one factor, it means it's not the other. It means that's the culprit. Here, it's multiple things. In Florida in particular, it is a lot of migrants that they're testing, and, and they get it. That, that's a hotspot population. So there's universal testing. They're younger, too. That drags down the age. It brings up the cases. It, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of universal testing. Some states, they're adding in antibody testing. Um, then you have the whole hospitalization issue. Just like we had death with COVID, death because of COVID, we have hospitalized with COVID, hospitalized because of COVID. Remember, remember, for two reasons, it's going to be the states that ironically were better off that you're going to see any degree of increase. Because in New York, I mean, it blew out the roof. It was a crisis. So there you're going to have a massive peak and you're going to have a straight line down because it pretty much got everyone it was going to get. Whereas in the other states, they never really had a peak. I mean, they all did have a little bit of a peak. Honestly, you talk about Florida and Texas, it didn't even reach. You look at the CDC charge, it, it, it didn't re- reach the 2018 flu season level. So obviously, there's more to cut through. So they never had a peak. So they're never going to have a full stop like New York. It's going to be kind of like an up and down, do, 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 up and down like you see on a like a stock ticker um, or a stock chart. But albeit it's going to be at a very low baseline. So any little bit of an increase might be a lot, but it's still well under New York. Cuomo is now trolling Florida like to retaliate for what DeSantis did to them. But that was justified by saying, I think we should have a two week quarantine rule for Floridians. But it's a joke because even their spiking, so to speak, is lower than New York. And again, They're a victim of their own success. See, New York is nothing to be proud of. It's like, well, we we no longer have cases. Well, it's kind of like saying I cut my head off so I no longer have a headache. Well, yeah, you died. I mean, you know, there in Florida, they're still chugging along with very remarkably few deaths for a state of 22 million and God knows how many seniors per capita more than any other state. So that trend is holding true. The other point is this. As we mentioned last Friday, 
the hospitalizations. It's precisely in these states where you had zero people in the hospital because COVID was overblown. They barely had any COVID patients, but the panic porn was just as strong there as it was in New York. So, you know, ORs were down 70%. ERs were down 50%. Plus, we didn't have universal testing. Heck, they didn't even have enough testing outside of New York for the ones that really did have it. Now we have universal testing of every organism that comes into the hospitals. Not only are they back up to par, but in many of these states, they're actually compensating for the lost care. Certainly the made-up surgeries, elective procedures, but also just the people we believe who got very sick, heart conditions and things like that, that weren't being taken to the ER and now they're going. Every person's being tested. You're a 35-year-old with a kidney stone. You go in there for a kidney stone because you're in a hell of a lot of pain. You are getting tested for COVID and a certain percentage are going to be positive. And that's not a refutation to our view. That proves our view that a heck of a lot of people have had it. Remember, you look at the serology tests and it showed sometimes 30 to 50 times more, um, a greater degree of people had it than, than what we actualized with the PCR testing. In Miami-Dade County specifically, they found a 17 to 1 ratio at the peak. So even if you have an increase... And even if the virus is off the peak and lower than the peak, there's still a lot more to discover. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of all of this together factoring in. With us today to really unpack this is a guy I've come to know, Kyle Lamb. Kyle Lamb is a uh, sportscaster. He has a podcast. Um, you could Google him, Kyle Lamb's podcast, Ohio State Sports. Now, you might be asking, why in the world am I having a sportscaster on this show to talk about COVID? You know what? Because the experts, so to speak, don't know anything. These are the people who led us astray. One of the beautiful things that I've noticed about um, social media, amidst all the, all the bad, and believe me, there is a lot of bad <laughs> is that you meet so many wonderful people. I've already had them, people like Justin Hart on the show. They might not have a fancy title. They might not even be in this field at all. But they're smart people. They put out good information. They're good at, at data analysis. They put out great charts. And you know what? Those people know more than, than these guys because this is not about science. It's about data analysis. It's about a continuity and a train of observations. They admit this is a novel virus. They don't know anything about it. They've never seen it. They don't have the answers, right? But what it is is studying what has happened across the, the world, the country, the different states, and the observations, and that's how you cut through the lies. To me, social media is kind of like the closing verse of Hosea, who is wise and will understand these discerning and will know them. For the ways of the Lord are straight, and the righteous shall walk in them, and the rebellious shall stumble on them. God doesn't give us bad things. He gives us social media. There, there's a lot you can do to properly research and educate yourself about issues. But for the wicked, it trips them up. You have these vacuous memes. Spike, spike, uh, racial, uh, racial, systemic, racism, and just like mind-numb robot stuff that destroys the world, or you could really drill down on an issue. And that's what people like Kyle Lamb has done. I want you guys to go to Kyle Lamb 8 on Twitter, at 
K-Y-L-A-M-B-8 on Twitter. You'll see his great um, work and information. Um, it's truly a must-follow. With no further ado, Kyle, sorry for filibustering there. Great to have you on the show. Dude, man, I might as well pack up and go home. I think you covered every base in, in your monologue that I could have possibly covered. That was that was tremendous. No, but you know what? That was broad. I really want I want to give this audience is a very smart audience. They know this already. I want you to drill down. I want to start with the macro nationwide and then drill down into some of these states that seemingly on a superficial some sort of level, there's some increase in cases. I want to go over, you have a chart. Folks, again, go to at Kyle Lamb 8. So it's K-Y-L-A-M-B 8. Scroll down a couple of tweets and you're going to see or go to his media and you could just look at the charts he has. He has an unbelievable chart. I mean, <laughs> this no one has done this. Where are we? How many deaths have we had? What's the trend? He put in a table week by week, day by day, so you could see both the seven-week, seven-day rolling averages and days of the number of cases and then the deaths. And what you're going to see in totality is the deaths are down and they keep going down, 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 down. We had yesterday 695 reported deaths and likely probably only three to 400 on that day from what we know. No more than that because a lot of them are backlogged. It's the least of any Thursday. Um, on Wednesday, we had the least of any Wednesday. On Tuesday this week, you could see it was the least. And sometimes it's down by like 25%. Um, Monday was 375, down 41% from the previous Monday. Could you, Kyle, could you elucidate at a macro level what we're seeing? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There are two, two things at play here. So if you go, uh, I, I should qualify ahead of time. So I'm getting my data from covidtracking.com. If you're interested in data analysis or if you're just interested in seeing the numbers, I would advise to go to covidtracking.com. I have no, no skin in the game there. I'm not trying to sell anything. That's not my website, but it is a great resource. And what it does is every day, Every single day at 4 p.m. or roughly thereafter, sometimes it comes at 5.30, sometimes at 6, but around 4 p.m. every day, they aggregate every single state's numbers and the entire country and put it together in this very easy-to-look-at uh, chart, and they separate each state out separately as well as the national trends. And so every day you see these numbers come through, new cases, new tests, new deaths, hospitalizations to the one the states that are reporting them. And that's a little trickier, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But what they do is they take all these numbers that are reported every single day and they put them into an easy-to-read form. And so I grab this data, and what I'm doing now is I said I want a – a chart, I want a resource for everybody to look at and be able to see the trends all together. And that means cases and tests, percentage, positive percentage, uh, hospitalizations, daily death trends. And so what's really important to impress upon people here is when a state comes out and says, today we had so many deaths, X number of deaths, let's say it's 100, okay, whatever the case may be. What's really misleading, and I noticed this a couple of weeks ago, and I really have tried to educate people because this is really the most misleading thing that we could – one of the more misleading things. I guess actually there are a few other things we'll talk about that are more misleading. But the deaths, when they're reported, they're largely not coming from the current week. So like you mentioned, uh, 695 on Thursday reported in the entire United States. 
out of those 695, now I haven't done the exact number, but I can tell you from examining this the last two weeks, only about 20% of the actual deaths being reported are happening in that week. That means 80% of these deaths are going backwards. And in Houston, it's what's interesting is they reported six deaths in Houston yesterday. Only one of those was from this this week. One of them was way back like April 23rd. So we're getting we're getting deaths numbers reported that are that are happening seven days ago, 10 days ago, 14 days ago, 21 days ago. And so when you look at the trend, we're getting low numbers reported now. And many of those are not even from this week. So what's probably happening, and we can't know for sure because there's another component to this that I'm reporting, is the CDC deaths. And you see a lot of great people doing the CDC excess deaths. And that's not something I dove into very well. Excess deaths, for those listening, that just means deaths over the expected or projected number for a given week based on prior precedent. But if you look at the COVID deaths by week, as far as date of death, we've only got 573 reported for the entire country for the week ending June 13. That's out of over 20,000 deaths reported so far to the CDC. Oh, so, so you're saying not, not just in a day, you're saying the entire week, 573 in a week. In an entire week, about 573. That's with about roughly a third of the number of deaths expected for that week reported. So 20,000, we expect about 60,000 country, countrywide about 20,000 have been reported, and we only have 573 deaths for the week ending June 13. Now, that's going to climb a little bit, obviously, when all the deaths are reported. But what that tells us is that the actual number of deaths being reported on a daily basis from the states, it's actually a lot lower right now than you're hearing. So the numbers are continuing to go down. You know, like you said, we're down about 25% so far in the first five days this week from last week. But that's just reported. What's actually happening right now on the ground, it appears is probably way lower. I don't want to. I don't want to put an exact number on this. This is just my guess. This is an estimate. So don't take this literally because I don't know for sure, and we won't know for sure for several weeks. But I, I'm willing to guess we're probably only seeing maybe 100, 150 deaths per day in the United States right now, in reality. And so it, it's really interesting because it, we are really truly at the end of the death curve right now, barring any outbreak. And that's another thing we'll have to get into is are we seeing another outbreak, but, but barring another, you know, flare up of cases for real, we are really, really close to the end. Okay. So I, I think that's pretty solid. And, and that, you know, a lot of people, even on our side, people ask me, they're very confused. They, they, they just see because they see charts and each side is their chart. Cases are going up. Deaths are going up. Hospitalization is going up. But I think that much we started with the low-hanging fruit. That is an incontrovertible fact that the deaths right now are the lowest they've ever been, um, even if you account for the total reported, which, again, you're saying it could be 80% of them were really from before. Um, it's something like 2.8% of expected deaths in the country, whereas at the peak, COVID was accounting for like 20% of the nationwide deaths. So, and by the way, just a point on the excess deaths, the, the important thing about that will be not so much to understand the immediate trend to try to push back against this masking and all this, the new lockdowns in these Texas liberal counties and everything. 
But just an overall look of of how many people actually died of COVID, how many people in the nursing homes that had Alzheimer's and were literally dying, they were in hospice care, and they had COVID, how many were asymptomatic, and they absolutely did not die from it, but it was counted as a COVID case. I think those are some of the things we're going to see. Um, it's a big chunk, whether it's 15, 20, 25, 30, or 40 percent of the COVID deaths are really not because of COVID, they're with COVID. Um, we'll find that out, but we're interested in seeing the trend. We want to really get the truth about the spike. So what they'll tell you is this. All right, Kyle, fine. You're right. The, the deaths are, I mean, we are well on our way to being at the end of the death curve. But here's the deal, Kyle. You stupid redneck losers in these red states. You went ahead a couple weeks ago and just opened it up and you had 15 people in an office. Forget about the 5,000 people riding on the streets. But um, anyway, and you, it takes like usually three weeks maybe to get to deaths from the cases. So hold on there. Wait another week or two because I'll tell you at the front end, it looks like we have spikes in Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, California which didn't, which did a lockdown, but okay. Um, that's a point there. Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida. Maybe you could tell me a couple others, but those are the ones I see they're focusing on. Um, so here's my question to you with that. Until now, it's been an accounting gimmick. Straight up, they're just testing more people, discovering everything I said. But in a lot of these states, you are genuinely seeing the uh, positivity rate is going up. So the rate of positive tests is going up. Um, some of that is that they are test bombing vulnerable areas, but there appears to be some sort of spread. Here's my question to you. By now, there, there's three levels. There's testing going up. There's positive tests going up. Hospitalizations going up. ICUs going up. Ventilators going up. Then deaths going up. We're absolutely definitely not seeing it in deaths. We're definitely, I know we're not seeing it in the ventilators and and ICUs, I have that number, except for the ICUs at the border in Arizona and California, because they were very serious people specifically coming over from Mexico just for that. We already that that is clear. But what about run of the mill hospitalizations? People are seeing headlines, Texas, Florida, maybe some other states, hospitalizations going up. Daniel, you can no longer say this is asymptomatic. These are these are sick people and it's coming back. And it's all because you idiots ended the lockdown too early. Yeah, you know, hospitalizations are tricky because there's so much inconsistency and irregularity in how they're reported. Some states report cumulative hospitalizations. Some states only report current hospitalizations. And even within even within either of those categories, whichever uh, or both, some states report both. But whichever category the state reports, I, I've noticed there, there's some I- irregularity, so it's it's hard to it's hard to compare state to state. But what what I've done to track hospitalizations is two things. Uh, one thing that I really like to rely on is EIP, and what that is is emergency uh, emerging infections program, and that's a CDC program in ten states that covers 100 counties. And what they do is is these counties are meant to mimic the demographics of the United States, okay, in both population, race, ethnicity, age, uh, all those factors are taken into account to set this program up. And so they they report in in almost not real time, but they report on a weekly basis the number of hospitalizations, the demographics of people being hospitalized. And to, to look at these numbers, yes, it's only 10 states and 100 counties, so it doesn't cover all the United States. 
but it's like polling, right? You you can get a sense and a feel for how people are voting based on a good demographic of polling of pollsters. And that's what the EIP does is, you know, these 100 counties, 10 states, they report the hospitalizations. And so by looking at these numbers week over week, you can get a sense of what's happening in the United States. It's not perfect. It doesn't cover every state. And there might be hot spots not covered within these areas. But when you look at hospitalizations for the EIP program, you were up to about 3,000, 3,200 hospitalizations a week in these states and these counties. And we're down, uh, the, the data cuts off right now through June 6th, ending June 6th. And and there is a little bit of a lag. I, w- I would say my observation is only about 75% of the hospitalizations are reported in the initial reporting week. But for June 6th, we were down to 1,100. And that's 200, by the way, less than the previous week, May 30th, when the initial uh, report came out for that, because that was 1,300. The week before that, May 23rd, was 1,500 when it was initially reported. So we're seeing about a 200 hospitalization drop for each initial reporting week the last three weeks. So that's what I like to use for for the best hospitalization data that we have. The other one is the state census data, going back to what I mentioned earlier, covidtracking.com. The states that report hospitalizations, there's about 30 of them that report cumulative hospitalizations, which means total number of people hospitalized throughout the entire ordeal. And when you separate them day over day, like a net from the previous day, you can get an idea of how many reported for each week. And we're seeing the same trend uh, as as EIP. We were down at a peak. At a, we were at like 26,000 in early April for a weekly trend of new hospitalizations. And right now we're at 4,700 for this particular calendar week. Last week was about 8,000. So we are definitely going down in hospitalizations. And that's not to say that there's no truth to hospitalizations being up in Arizona. So, so, so that's the thing. How do you how do you have the numbers nationwide down so much? But then they'll show charts from Texas, Arizona, Florida, even other states. And uh, they'll say, look, hospitalizations are up. Is that all of what I've been talking about or, or, or a significant part, the, the, the mixture of like, for example, in New York, in New York, you're never going to see a hospitalization increase because it maxed out. You had near universal testing very early, certainly in the hospitals very early. And you had legitimate serious covid cases in large numbers. So nothing that happens now is going to outshine what happened before. But in these type of states, precisely where you didn't have that much and you didn't have testing, now that you have testing, like a certain amount, whatever percentage, 10 percent, I mean, of a certain segment or 5 percent has it. Well, that percentage of people coming in for strokes, kidney stones, um, gang warfare, (laughs) trauma units, car accidents. Remember, car accidents are probably back up 50%, so they're back in the hospital. They're going to test them. Um, they're going to test anyone. Is that the 800-pound gr- – I mean, I, I can't – like, to me, there should be a good data point. Do we have any sense of how many new – are? is there this rush of people coming into hospitals in some of these southern states trouble breathing with, with the COVID signs? Yeah, this is a this is a multi-layered issue, and it's it, it's tough to get a a drill down definitive one answer to this because there are so many things going on. But here here's what I think is going on. I think it's a couple things. Number one 
It's just the way the data is being collected and manipulated. Like in Arizona, I think there's a little bit of spread going on, but it's really tough to tell because, A, they're including serology positives in the totals, which means people that already had COVID a month ago, two months ago, if you have antibodies in your system and you test positive for antibodies, you're getting included in the totals. And that's misleading because that's basically saying, well, the percentage is going up. But I know as of last week, for the previous five weeks in Arizona, 16% of all positives reported were actually serology positives. So that, so when you get 16 out of every 100 that are reported being serology, that's misleading because it makes the, the numbers look like they're climbing when, in fact, they're including people that already had it. Already had it, yeah. So that indicates some – sense of spread that's not actually occurring there uh the other part of it and, and well, I, think- I was just saying what about florida and alabama the carolinas because i want to stay away a little bit from the southwest just because i really do think the mexico thing is a huge factor i mean if it was enough of a factor that clearly registered with the icus there then clearly they were being brought in and if they're being brought in it could be that they're responsible for a community spread um, you know, obviously our government, you know, does everything backwards. So we lock down Americans in their homes. But then the first damn thing that you would close up is your border. Um, we're like, well, they're dual citizens or green card. Yeah, but you don't have a right to come over the border now. Um, and we just bring them over. So I, I think that there is legitimacy to what's going on there from that standpoint, because Mexico is farther or I would say not as far along in the curve. You know, it went there later, went to Latin America later. So, you know, they had more serious cases. But let's move away from there. Do you have anything with the Carolinas, Alabama, Florida? Well, I do know Alabama had been, they had been fudging their numbers. I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but they admitted that they, they had a lot of old positives in there. They had they had some that were accidentally counted twice and they adjusted their numbers. And when you look at the percentage, like all of a sudden it's shot down. So they're, like Alabama, I don't know that we're seeing the increase that we thought we were seeing a week or two ago. Florida, at least... If you just look at the the seven day rolling average of case percentage, and that, that's positive percentage to t- total number of tests, Florida actually you can see some growth in the numbers. Now whether it are they including serology, they, I, they to my knowledge they're not, but they could be. I know they have said that they're uh, they're testing mass testing migrant worker camps, which means you're going to see a lot of asymptomatic folks that wouldn't have been. Yeah, have been going to get they're getting 20, 30 percent positivity there. So that's really going to jack up when you talk about like, you know, going from like three point five percent positivity to back up to closer to five percent statewide. Well, that's going to jack up your numbers. So DeSantis, I think, did a good job explaining that. And I'm okay with that. But what I can't get a handle on is the hospitalizations. Now, again, look, even if it comes back, it is nothing to do with lockdown because it, it was too late. For their thesis, it should have happened right away. And number two, like, you can't tell me at the same time that the part, like, let's face it, these states, even with the reopening, they're not reopened like normal. They're partially reopened. Um, Every one of them banned mass gatherings, okay? Yet you have the rioting with 5,000 people and the protests jam-packed. You, you can't look me in the face and say, what, you know, the, the, the 15 people going back to your you know, law firm, accounting firm office in Florida is what's spreading it. Um, but, but somehow the, the 5,000 people jam-packed in the shop. And I get it. We haven't seen outdoor transmission, and I'm a big believer of that in the outdoors. But still, like when we have that, that packed, I mean, 
if they're right, you should see it there. So I'm not bothered by it. And, and it could be, even if it does come back, I think it's a matter of, again, like, they never really got it bad. So there's just more lurking out there. Um, but I'd rather have their gradual situation than New York's situation with on net fewer people per capita dying, even if it drags out longer because it takes longer for it to kind of cut through the population. Um, heck, Kyle, isn't that what we call a flattened curve? <laughs> <laughs> it is, ironically. And that's the, that's the thing. And that's kind of what got me chotched up in the first place is back in March, there were so many... Uh, so many people rushing to judgment and, and, and there was a lot of fear mongering going on. And that's kind of why I got interested in this in the first place, because I was looking at the early data coming out of Italy when the outbreak started there. And I'm like, you know, it just doesn't match all these projections, the millions of people dying and and 40 to 70 percent of America getting this. You know, those were what we those were the numbers we were throwing around back in mid-March. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm doing the math on this, and based on what we know of asymptomatic transmission so far, and based on what we know of the people dying in Italy, like that just didn't match. And it was the same way with flatten the curve, right? It was supposed to be 14 days here in America, flatten the curve, then we'll open back up. That was the, that was the company line. And now we've completely got away, gotten away from that, even though it was never more than 40% national average of hospitalization uh, capacity here in America back in April when we hit our peak. Like now it's like we completely got away from flattening the curve and it's just, well, people are dying. We have to stay shut down or we people are – this is spreading again. We have to shut back down. It really just doesn't match the numbers we were seeing. And that's, that's the reason I took such a keen interest into this because – I'm a I'm a data mind. I'm a guy that looks at the numbers and I'm just like, that doesn't seem right. And and I just started crunching the numbers and it has never matched the hysteria. Mm. One of the things that I'm finding interesting here. So obviously we, we, we saw the study from Italy, 4300 sample size that nearly 70% of infections among those under 60 are asymptomatic. So again, when you see in Florida that they're saying the 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 median age has almost been cut in half. It's out 37 of those who get it. I mean, dude, like that's I mean, they're they're majority of them asymptomatic and and I'm sure the majority of the remainder of those are mildly symptomatic. I mean, we never panic when people get the flu, much less a cold. So you know that's that's the issue. We and, and and we have a new serology test. Maybe I should do an article on this. No one's talking about this in North Carolina. That 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 basically shows a point one point one at least there. It's a little lower than other places, but point one IFR. I mean that's the benchmark we use for the flu. So I mean that's part of the other thing. Is they're like I found COVID, but they're they're using that kind of tone of voice. As if it's still the Ebola that some thought it was. Yeah. But it's like you use the uh, Ebola example. And it's so funny you say that because I said the same thing to a friend yesterday when we're talking about athletes testing positive. I'm like, they're treating these 20 year old athletes getting uh, COVID-19 like they're Ebola cases. It, it's incredible that they're not making any distinction for what the risks are compared to an 85 year old. No, exactly. I mean, that was my point. Ebola is more rare and deadly. This like this is what we said about respiratory viruses. Almost all of them are they're, they're They spread very quickly. These, you know, they each have their quirks. But therefore, I mean, it's a certain vulnerable population. Clearly, a lot of vulnerable people die every year of the flu. I mean, that's where you see the spikes every season in, in the CDC charts. Um, so to me, that's the interesting thing 
that, you know, they're proving our point. Also, again, it does seem qualitatively it is weakening, which tends to happen. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about they all assumed a, a second wave. And, and and even according to their logic, it wouldn't be a second wave yet. It would be a continuation of the first. But there's this like thought, oh, it gets worse because they take from the Spanish flu. But every other time it got better. And again, the Spanish flu, we don't have the specimens of the first one. We do, we really don't have a lot, shockingly. I mean, it's not like from the 1700s. We don't know a lot. And there was a third wave, presumably third, that was weaker. So, I mean, I don't know much. I'm just speculating. But who's to say the first one wasn't something else? And it was the traditional trajectory like anything else where the second one was really the first one. That was the bad one. And, you know, there's a second wave that was much milder. So, I mean, that's what I'm wondering, but let me just ask you connected to that. Why is it that no matter what, it does seem like in America, like, you know, it peaked, we're off the peak. It seemed to do the same thing it does in every country, but then it's kind of lingering. Whereas you look at Europe and it almost seems like they're done with it. Or is it just because America is test bombing and obsessing about testing? Is it all that? Or is there something more to it? Yeah, I think it's three things. I think it's the size of the United States because there's so many different areas it's impacting and not everybody is on the same epidemiological curve. I think it's just lingering more because of the sheer size of the United States. When, you know, you look at France and Italy, those are a lot smaller geographies. We're talking about the size of Florida or Georgia. Uh, and so I think I think because of the sheer size, it's lingering longer. I think, like you said, it's the mass testing. We we are ironically when this whole thing started. Well, United States is doing so bad in testing it's behind everywhere else in the world. Well, that's no longer the case. You know, we have caught up and we have gone ahead of most of these countries as far as tests, you know, per million people. So the testing is finding a lot more cases than some of these other countries are finding because they're not as committed to finding those asymptomatic cases that we're seeing here. And then I think the third thing, going back to like the Mexico thing, there are a lot of people. This is real. This is happening. People are coming from across the border to seek health care in the United States when they're sick. You know, so they're going to United States hospitals and we're getting positive tests from those people. We're getting hospitalizations from those people. And so I think that's probably uh, maybe artificially boosting the numbers a little bit, too. So I think it's a lot of things. And I think but those are the three primary ones. Sure. And connected to Europe, I want to posit a theory here and you to check my theory. (laughs) Check my theory with the audience, what you think about it. I actually I said this over to my wife late, late last night. There's a certain realization I had. You might have seen this. It came out this week. A couple weeks ago, both sides of the Sweden debate, you know, the, the, the lockdown fascists and us, we both would have agreed that no matter what, Sweden's going to come out with a hell of a lot of a lot more herd immunity than anyone else. A big percentage are going to get it because, well, they're not doing lockdown. It's going to spread. It's going to spread easier. It just, you know, their argument is it's going to kill everyone and it's not worth it. Our argument is that in the long run on net, they're actually going to have fewer deaths, um, especially if you look at the um, lockdown deaths and everything and then all the other collateral damage. And it's, you know, it's not really that deadly to most people. It's the nursing homes and, you know, you do a good job securing it. You're, you're better. If not, they're going to die anyway. I mean, and Sweden didn't do such a good job with that. But no matter what, Everyone agreed, like, more are going to get it. What was shocking is they came out with, they they think it's only 16.5% prevalence, which is not that much more than anywhere else. And my theory is this, and I'm wondering if, if what you think about it. 
My theory is that we don't know everything about how this transmits, but that this is this is airborne in some way that this thing, it's going to get you no matter what. I mean, there's new studies. They found that even people with PPE, good PPE, medical workers are getting it more and more now in June. It, uh, someone, one of our friends had this on Twitter. It went up like 20% in 18 days. You know, we, no, we don't have a PPE crisis. We have tons of PPE now. It just, they, they it will get you. If it's going to get you, it's going to get you. Um, whether you ha- whether you go out or don't, it's going to get you. The only thing that likely helps is is if you are already symptomatic, stay the hell home. And that you know, at the beginning, when everyone was caught by surprise, every country you know there was that first tranche. That's what caused the crisis. And we now know with the viral loads, it's mainly those people that are going to spread. Um, the asymptomatic, really, most studies, you know, I'm not going to say they don't spread, but it, it's at the very minimum, it's not really responsible for that much. Even the pre-symptomatic, you know, in Singapore, they found just responsible responsible for maybe 6%. It, it's mainly going to be the people going for a week. I mean, and, and look, let's face it, maybe some of us always need to be a little bit more careful, but none of us, I mean, when you have a cold and we have a sore throat, you're not going to shut yourself down. If you have a really bad flu, you do, but not a cold. Um, but a lot of these people, they really had COVID and whatever. Now, even in Sweden, anyone, they were going to, you know, voluntarily, if you had symptoms, they were going to, um, they're going to stay home. And a lot of people are voluntarily doing it. So there wasn't that much of a difference. They just weren't doing this stupid, arbitrary, like shut down the school, shut down a small business, shut down a church. Like, you know what I mean? That, that stuff they weren't doing. So the only thing they weren't really getting were the asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic. And you know what? We see from Cuomo, we see in New York City, 65% of the people wound up dying in the hospitals. They were, they were locked down. It gets you. It gets you no matter what. What I'm wondering is if it's pretty much the same number and then it hits a brick wall. It hits a brick wall at some point because of this partial immunity, this partial cross immunity um, that maybe either makes it you don't get it or you get it, but the T4 cells instead of the T8 cells because they're helper cells, not killer cells. So they won't kill it, but it will make it that it doesn't present. Maybe that's asymptomatic. I threw a lot of things in there. Take it from there. Yeah, look, I think there is there is some validity to that theory. When you look at total cases per million population, I think this is the best way to look at spread. And, and there, there are a lot of factors for spread, by the way. I still think climate plays a part. Uh, we know heat does help help diminish the spread. That doesn't mean it stops it. We we know now it doesn't stop it, but it does diminish it a little bit. And you know, humidity uh, for sure. Right, humidity for sure. Population density is a big thing, you know, among spread. I did this several weeks back. You may remember the study, Daniel, when I when I grouped all United States counties by both population density and by climate. By average temperature using the U.S. Uh, GS, or I'm sorry, the National Weather Service uh, climate data uh, for the month of April, I think it was back then. I grouped everything into five categories for density and for climate, and and then put a total number. So you wound up getting a total of 11, 11 different groups, and the studies by number, like the the number of cases per million was a perfect correlation all the way down in 11 groups. That means group number one with the highest density and the most moderate climate in the 40 degree range, 
that had the highest case numbers. And when you go all the way down to, to groups number uh, number groups number 10 and 11, they had the lowest. So it was almost a perfect correlation there. So density and climate definitely matters. But going back to Sweden, though, so when you look at cases per million population, even though there's a lot of a lot of variance there, you know, they're in the, the 5,500 range cases per million, which is a little bit on the high side, but it's right in line with some of the worst hit countries like Spain, who did lock down, is over 6,000 per million. The UK is, is just under 5,000. Belgium's over 5,000. So they're a little bit high. But they're within the same range, some of the lockdown countries. And that, to me, says all of the uh, the fear mongering and the hysteria about 70 percent of the population getting this early on. It just goes back to what I said earlier. It just that never really made sense to me. And we're seeing that because we know children aren't getting it probably because uh, or if they are, they're asymptomatic and they're not spreading. We know yeah, they're not spreading. Right. They're not spreading it. And we know that there's not much outdoor transmission. That's not to say there's not any outdoor transmission, but there's not much outdoor transmission. Like you said, the T cells, some people are naturally immune. Other people that are getting it are asymptomatic and we're not finding them because there's no they're not showing symptoms so there's no reason for them to get tested so i i think you're right i think there's just a natural barrier regardless of lockdowns there's just so many people that are going to get this and the rest of them just were never really at risk and i i think that's what we're we're finding with the data right now yeah what i find fascinating with that is that you know and it's been a learning experience for all of us i mean when this just came out I would have said, man, this is this is transmissible like anything, right? I mean, that's what everyone was saying, and it, and it certainly appears so. But then, what was funny is that, like, husbands and wives or or um, cabin mates in the ships, some would get it, but a lot of times it would one would and one wouldn't. You'd be like, well, wait a minute, I don't know what type of marriage you have, <laughs> but but you know, I mean, any marriage, like, if this thing's gonna spread and get you, like they're saying, I mean, this thing is so transmissible. And and that's when I realized, you know, my I, I had an uncle. I have an uncle in Long Island. He got he he got a bad case. He was hospitalized. Um, he was not in the ICU, but they sent it. He was there for for a little while. Sent him home with some oxygen thing. It was it was bad. It was probably the worst thing he's had in his life. He got he was one of those who got a bad case. And I was like, what about my aunt? I kept asking my mother, like, what, what's his deal? What, what's her deal? And I mean. I don't think they ever knew, but it's either she had inherent immunity or it presented itself asymptomatically. Um, and again, we saw that on on the Argentinian ship. I think there were 10 cabin mates that that did not get it. So, you know, it just I was awestruck by the chief of health in Norway. She was asked on by this British guy, what is that, Lockdown TV, really good show. Um, she was asked by him, hey, what do you think of Sweden? And you would think she would take the softball and hit it out of the park. Like, hey, they suck. I mean, look at us. We had a much better outcome. We did lockdown, and they didn't. Hey, they, they. And I was shocked by the humility. She was like, you know what? It's really not that much of a difference. You know, we didn't enforce it as much as the other countries did, maybe a little bit. They did it voluntarily in some cases. It wasn't that much of a difference in what we did a little bit. A lot of it's really luck. She did not take the swing. And she really kind of intimated that it, it, what you do doesn't really seem to matter. Um, and, and I think the biggest thing is this, like Asia. Let, let's go to Asia a little bit. 
I want to get your thoughts on Asia. So, you know, at first we're all like, man, they did a good job. They did a good job. But then it was like, wait a minute. That's too unnatural. Every damn Asian country, no matter what they did, you know, some had a lot of cases, some had few, some did the schools open, some didn't, some did mass testing like in, in South Korea, some didn't like in Japan, and Japan didn't even do that much of a lockdown. But all of them had a fraction of the deaths of every Western country. So there's got to be, and like, at first we we're like, okay, they're, they're not fat. Like, when's the last time you saw a fat Japanese guy? Like, you know, or Taiwanese guy. Like, okay, that's true. But, you know, there's they're more at risk, but there's plenty of non-obese people in, in Western countries that died from it. Like, there's got to be something more enduring. And doesn't that show that whatever inherent population here has to cross immunity is likely most of the people there? Yeah, I, I that is actually my thought, because if you look at these numbers, like you said, they are unnaturally low. Japan has 140 cases per million people right now. You know, we just mentioned Sweden over 5000. Japan is 140. Uh, South Korea is 240. Like these are just unnaturally low numbers like you can say what you want about contact tracing or whatever chasing down all these cases there is no way that they single-handedly stop that virus (laughs) in its track just by contact tracing let's just be real i don't care and dude and dude let's talk about subways and population density say what you want about new york but dude tokyo takes the cake right i mean that's the biggest urban area in the world it blows out new york and every darn person there takes the subway. And if I so, remember, right, even yeah. Seoul, uh, Seoul is more dense than most U.S. cities. I don't think it's more dense than New York, but I think it's dense, more dense than every other city in the United States. So, yeah, you, can, you can't tell me that the, that they just single handedly snuff that virus out by contact tracing. So I think there's something to that natural immunity. Is it the other coronaviruses? Because we know coronaviruses are very, very common in that part of the world. Maybe they just have more natural immunity in that part of Asia to the coronavirus because even and we're not going to get into the China thing, but, you know, regardless of whether China was being honest about their numbers or not, it didn't really hit Beijing or other part eastern parts of China. Shanghai, yeah. Right. And so I still think that there's some kind of natural immunity thing going on there, maybe because of other coronaviruses, T cells, whatever. I don't know. And, and, and I think I think what it could be is. It's likely everyone's gotten a coronavirus in Asia, but I think this is like the balance between the defense and the offense, the defense of your system and the viral load of the thing. So it could be in Wuhan, it really was a tremendous viral load, and that was able in certain people to overcome, or really vulnerable people are the only people maybe who died there, whereas in America, like, because you see that in America clearly, like, um, as much as the data show that it's almost all people with comorbidities. I I just personally know of a lot of cases I've heard about with like, you know, a 62 year old doctor where he wasn't 80 and he wasn't really sick and he he died. And, you know, it's it's the viral load, the viral load they get from the sickest patients in the hospital. I, I mean, that's that's what it is. So it's that versus this. But I think like this is what's misleading about what they're doing with Florida and why Ron DeSantis is holding his ground. What I think you're happening, what's happening with Florida is very similar to Qatar and Singapore. Qatar and Singapore had a lot of cases, a lot of cases, few deaths. A big part of both of those were migrant workers. 
And it's funny, that's what you seem to have a lot in Florida, at least from what I hear from people in the DeSantis administration, is that it's very much what you're seeing now is migrant workers. You know, the media is now, New York Post is like bashing him. He said it's the Hispanics. I mean, they took him out of context. That wasn't his point. Um, you know, it wasn't his point. But uh, that's what I wonder. And any any closing thoughts here? Well, and on that point real quick, uh, you mentioned the viral load. And I think that's another point I want to impress upon people, too, because because I thought about this. You know, you mentioned the the University of Pittsburgh, the UPMC doctor that mentioned that in that part of the country, in the Middle East, in the Mideast, uh, United States, the Middle Atlantic states, the viral load is going way down from their observation. And we heard that from uh, the National Director of Health in Italy as well. In parts of the country, at least, not necessarily everywhere, but we know in parts of this country, the viral load is way down, which means it has a tougher time spreading. And if it does spread, it's not going to make you as sick generally. So that's another thing to consider. We know this is going on because it's the natural life of the virus. So even if cases are still spreading in the southern United States, it doesn't mean it's going to hospitalize as many people. And it only doesn't mean as many people will die from it. And like you touched on at the very start, I think, in your monologue, you know, there could be it could have already hit the most vulnerable part of the population. The people that are really uh, predisposed to being at risk from this may have already gotten it and either passed away or got really sick and, and recovered. So even if it is still spreading and we don't know for sure, but even if it is still spreading, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the second wave of deaths. It just may mean that it's just going to linger for a little while and then go away. And, and I think that's proven with microevolutionary theories with with viruses like that. I mean, you know, obviously, um, I don't believe in, uh, you know, humans came from apes, but but microevolution, I mean, it pr- proves the veracity of God's design. It, it Living organisms are programmed in a way to survive and it, it, it's I mean, this is known with with a lot of these viruses. They they have some sort of ability to track down and vet out the most vulnerable the the, the earliest. I mean, that that's known. Right? I mean, heck, Neil Ferguson, the, the, the great the great uh, saint of lockdowns himself is the guy who said that up to two thirds of all deaths in the UK will be people who would have died within a year. Um, not just old, but would have died within a year. And I suspect even like cases where you find 63, 65 year olds, they didn't really appear that sick, but they but they died. Well, there are people that, you know, it's very sad that you hear they pass away suddenly, heart, heart attack, whatever, like, hey, what's the deal with that? But it could be those people. That was their time. And the virus was able to vet that out. And our ability to to prevent that, I mean, other than not like taking positive COVID patients and putting them in nursing homes, you know, like what the lockdown people did um, is very limited. Um, final question. We got to run. We're running on an hour here over an hour with the beginning of the show. Um, you're a sportscaster. Where do you see sports headed in the coming weeks and months? Well, geez, I, I, I was really optimistic. Everything with the exception of the baseball, you know, the players and the owners not being able to come to agreement over money. Everything else seems to be, you know, ready to go. We're, we're you know, we've got NBA probably coming back. We've got definitely got NHL coming back. It seemed like college football and NFL were right on track. And then all of a sudden, of course, Dr. Fauci comes out with that CNN interview saying, well, football probably can't start up unless we do this, this and this and this. And it's like it's, it's funny that guy is able to touch every 
every single base of every single issue. And we, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked because we could go on for hours about that. But, uh, but I was really optimistic, and then he throws that out there. And now it's like, well, I still think there's going to be football coming up this fall. But with him saying that, now you know the politicians are going to be extra guarded, and who knows what's going to happen from this. So this is why we really have to fight extra hard to get this data out there and see what the truth is because you know there are people that just want to keep fear mongering and and football would be an innocent uh would be an innocent casualty of that if we don't get that truth out there and we really need it we need people to get get you know have some sort of an out so maybe uh maybe they'll watch a game instead of rioting um this is it, it is it is bad i mean we're we're in a bad state here that was very enlightening kyle um at kyle lamb eight on twitter follow him we'll have you back folks we're way over time it's been a terrific week it's been a productive week it's been a difficult heartrending week i mean it's been this has been one of the worst weeks uh, i think of for our country the supreme court the rioting the chaos the dismantling of our culture um, the, the the push for more tyranny and lockdowns amidst the anarchy for criminals, the worst mix of all. We need salvation from God. We need God to entrust um, or bestow our leaders and give us leaders that actually have insight. Have a terrific weekend. Let's recharge our batteries. Folks, same time, same place Monday. Stay armed, stay knowledgeable, and stay empowered.